Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him, through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Here's Paul's description of Jesus Christ in all His fullness and everything he offers to them, so that they would, and his warning is, to not be taken captive by vain philosophy or empty deceit. That is, there is always in this world, as we realize what he's saying here, the spiritual warfare that you and I are in, the reason Jesus Christ had to die on the cross is because of the condemnation that we have upon us and also because of the tremendous deception that is around us. There is a strong difference in Paul's mind here between the world (coughs) as it previously was and the new world that is coming. That is the language when he speaks of circumcision and baptism, being circumcised with a circumcision that is without hands, putting off of the body of the flesh that is the old world, the old man, your old sinful nature that has been removed as so far Jesus Christ's body was cut off. He, he, his body and soul, right? The, the definition of, of death is to be separated from the body. Well, that's what Paul means by the circumcision of Christ. That Jesus was circumcised. That, that is, his flesh was cut off. Everything else in the Old Testament about that concept of what we call circumcision was just a picture, a type. The real thing happened to Jesus, that he was cut off entirely through death. And by that, he has also done that for you, that you have been cut off from all of the world. And therefore, the same image for circumcision is the same image for baptism. That you've been buried, like going down in the water of baptism and coming back up, going down dead, coming up alive. They're both images of going from death to life, from old to new. And so we are in a spiritual war in which there are many principalities and powers, Paul went on to speak about in the beginning of the letter, that are opposed to Jesus Christ. And he ended here, the verse says, particularly about him having dominion. 
Verse 15, he says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is, these spiritual forces, these angelic beings that are dark or demonic, were conquered through Jesus Christ. Now, you and I live in an age in which that conquering has been uh, begun, but it is not consummated, it is not complete. We are in this war, hence the need to not be taken captive or taken into slavery. Everything in this world is opposed to Jesus. Everything in this world, when I say world, I mean the biblical term of the world as in the old age, the world that once was. It is all opposed to Jesus Christ. And the only thing that really matters is how you know Jesus or not. Because if the verse is true, then in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's nothing else that really matters. He is everything. Paul uses expressive language. Couldn't be more exhaustive to say in him, all things created through him and for him and by him. He upholds all things, and in him all things are held together by his power. If you can understand Jesus... That's all that matters in your life. Now, he disarmed the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them in the cross. There are many deceptive spirits. They are uh, conveyed to us through uh, false teachers. And false teachers are not just people who uh, try to claim something about Jesus Christ uh, falsely. False teachers are everything. Books, magazines, movies, media, everything in this world that is properly called the old world is opposed to Jesus Christ. And we have to see that for what it is. And so we'll look now to see the lies that can be spoken about Jesus and the truth and how that affects your life and mine every day. Every day. We are tempted to believe lies about him. If you believe lies about Jesus, you will be in a lot of trouble. So, the completeness of Jesus Christ comes this way. John says it differently. It's interesting in the scriptures that we have so many different writers. You can pit them against one another when they're actually saying the same thing. But because they're both separate individuals with separate minds and personalities, they say it, express it in a little bit of different way, which gives us even more beauty and wisdom behind it. John's way of saying what Paul just read what I just read from Paul, is from John 1, 14 to 17. In the beginning of his gospel, he chooses to open up this way. He says, the word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory of the only son from the father who is full of grace and truth. Now God has always been Glorious, and always been full of grace and truth. What John wishes to say here is that he has uniquely manifested his beauty in his only begotten Son. There's no one like him. And we've learned more about God through him than we've ever have before. He goes on to speak about this greater revelation, the uniqueness, the only begottenness, the monogenes of the Son. By saying this further, from His fullness, we receive grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's how John wanted to say it. God was always gracious, and he's always been true. It's not as though now that Jesus has arrived, God all of a sudden has become gracious and true. What he means to say is everything we ever knew about God before through Moses. In the law, in the smoky mountain, the Ten Commandments, the parting of the sea, the nation of Israel, David and the prophets. Everything we ever knew about him, it was gracious and true. But it just pales in comparison, comparing the sun to the moon. That, that there was light in the moon, but when the sun came, when Jesus came, it is his fullness of grace and truth. That we receive grace upon grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It, he says particularly the fullness of grace and truth are in Jesus Christ. And then he says this, and we have received from his fullness. That is, it is in the ancient Eastern Orthodox type church. They would speak about the energies of God. And they would say it is like the sun. And it is like the sun has light. Right? The sun in the sky has light. And it produces photons. It produces energy. That energy extends to us. Extends to us. And fills this world with energy. Every day this world is being hit with so much energy. And it produces so much life and light through plants and every form of energy and heat and kinetic energy transferred to everything that creates the ability for us to live and thrive. And so what he's saying is, there is Jesus Christ who is full, the radiance, the, the, the absolute power of all God's grace and truth. He is full to the brim. And we have experienced, or that fullness has extended to us. That image is locked in for John. This is how Paul decides to go with the people he addresses in Colossians. He is addressing particularly false teachers so that they would, what we have just said about Jesus Christ, that they would seek to take away that glory from him. All of um, church history, everything since the gospel has been in part heresies. Properly called, that is, saying false things about Jesus, lying about Jesus. If you can believe a lie about Jesus, you are in trouble. You have lost something of the fullness that could come to you, of all the grace and truth that he has at his disposal. All that the, has to happen is that you believe lies about him. That you have some type of false understanding or belief of him. Paul goes on for this reason to say, do not let anyone disqualify you. He, earlier in the letter, think of this expressive language. There is expansive language here. Nothing else can fit in here except the one eternal Son of God. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All things were created through him, for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything said there points to the reality of a timeless, eternal, uncreated Son of God. 
that is absolutely providential in preserving and sustaining everything that happens in this world and governing it toward his intended ends. That is Jesus Christ. That is the one true Jesus Christ. That is the Jesus Christ that you and I are here this morning to worship, to worship him for this. That he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is everything. And anything that takes away from that fullness of him, anything that mitigates or lies about him in any way is properly what we call a heresy, a heresy, a deadly fatal lie. Lying about God. Something that's not usually popular to do in sermons, I'm going to do right now. And I don't know why, because I had COVID last week. I just wasn't thinking right. I'm just going to do it this way. I'm just going to read a series of heresies and fancy, funny words that maybe you've never heard. I'm going to do this to demonstrate ever since the advent of Christ, part of, part of the work of us as Christians has been nothing more than to not screwing it up. Not losing who he is. Very first, one of the very first heresies the church has ever had to fight with was called docetism. It was a belief of taking away the fullness of Jesus by, by saying that he only appeared to be, only appeared to be human in some way. That there wasn't this full deity of Jesus Christ in all his glory and majesty bodily contained. Very close second to that is Gnosticism. That is this belief of having secret spiritual knowledge of God. That is to say, Jesus is not enough. You must have more. You must have a higher level of experience or knowledge. It's very likely this is what Paul's addressing in the letter of the Colossians. When he says, in Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge... He's saying that particularly to, contra- to, to counter these false teachers who are saying there must be more to be had and Jesus is not enough. No, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is every ounce of wisdom in every part of human domain of life. Gnosticism. Arianism. Arianism. Jesus is not fully God. He's not co-essential with God. So not, he's not fully human. Well, Arianism, he's not fully God. Here's our syllables now. Apollinarianism. Someone maybe who's ever heard of that one? These ones we're at wrestle with, but they're true. This is historical Christianity. This is what Paul means when he says the principalities and powers and the elemental spirits of the air are always pushing against the one true Christ. That you can know anything, you can have any religion, you can have any philosophy or worldview, but let it not be the Logos of God, the the Jesus, the Christ, the one Alpha and Omega, the true living Savior. Apollinarianism is the belief that Jesus had no soul or spirit, that he had no real human mind. He was just a body fully contained by God. But no, he was fully human as well. That is, think of this, that he is... The wisdom of God. Think of the contemplating the beauties of Christ. That if you have a troubled mind, if you have a troubled soul, so did he. The unchanging, boundless, eternal, immutable God also had a human, passionful, changing mind. 
He knows what it's like to be you. He was tempted like you in every way but without sin. He had it all locked up in his head like you do. And he saved you through that. You have to have union with him to commune with him at the very broken level of your existence down to your very soul. And here we have the word Apollinarianism. We don't give that up in any way. You need all of Christ, the complete Christ to save you. And that is the one you walk with, not these falsely made Jesus. Eutychianism, the idea that Jesus had no human nature at all, that he was completely subsumed by his divine nature. But in reality, when we really get to it, what are the lies that you believe about Jesus? Potentially none of these words that maybe you've only heard the first time this morning. But it does come down to apathy. Being apathetic toward Jesus Christ. That is a lie. At any point you feel that way. That your love for him. That your devotion to him is waning. You have to step backward. You have to look again and retrace your steps. And realize that you have believed a lie about Jesus. That if you don't see him for the beauty he is, and for all the goodness that he offers you, you've missed it. You've believed a lie about him. These false teachers are like slave owners. That's why Paul says, see to it that no one takes, <clears throat> takes you captive. You see, if, if any lie about Jesus Christ can enter into your mind, then you are enslaved to that lie. The false teachers are slave owners. And their false teaching are the chains. They bind you. See, they limit the fullness of the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ that can be brought to you in your life. Because you're not seeing him for who he is and worshiping him for who he is and fellowshipping with him for who he is. That union and communion that you should be having with him is being robbed from you. You are being taken away from Jesus Christ because you are not actually worshiping him for all his goodness and beauty. Any lie that contradicts the nature of Jesus Christ is like being taken captive. See, the completeness, Paul says, is this. As you receive Jesus Christ, walk in him. Walk in him. The manner of your life, continue in him. Rooted, built up, and established in the faith. That is, once you have Jesus, you have everything you need. That is, once you hear the gospel, it comes to you, you believe it, you submit your whole life to him. Every penny you own, every minute you ever breathe, it is all his. You give it to him. You lay it at the foot of that cross. From that point, you are complete. You need nothing. Now, full, fully mature, all your problems figured out and ironed out, of course not. But there is no other domain or source in which you must run. It is Jesus. Paul says, particularly, being rooted in him. He's the seedbed in which you're ever going to grow. If any good life is going to grow from you, the life of God is going to grow out of the way your manner of living. It is going to happen because you're rooted to Jesus. Being built up in him, he says. That is, he is the foundation of your life. Jesus' own words is that he who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. Right? Jesus is the foundation of your life. There is no other foundation to be laid. You are complete. You are full in him. Established in the faith. That is, this faith once delivered for the saints 
through the apostles and no other false teaching or heresy to be had. If you take Jesus that way, take Jesus from the scriptures, you are complete. The problem Paul is addressing is that he doesn't want the whole church, think of Paul doing his missionary journeys and churches are being spread and planted throughout Asia Minor. And a church he never met pops up and there's people who are beginning to believe in Jesus and have union and fellowship with God. And he immediately writes a quick letter to say, now do not be taken captive. Think about that pressure. Think about the stresses of that. And if that was a threat for them, is it not a threat for you and I? That you and I, if you, if, you, if you read parts of Scripture perhaps, or you read open the Gospel of John, you say, the fullness of all grace and truth has been extended to us. And you read it once, and you read it twice, and you read it three times, and you're like, you know what, that's not really hitting me. I don't, it doesn't really move me. What, what do you mean, John, like the fullness of Jesus Christ has come to us? I don't know what that means experientially. It doesn't really have any value or comport to my own experience. That is indicative of the reality that this danger is alive today. That you and I very well could be taken captive by false teaching, by a false appropriation, by a misvaluation of Jesus, by some lie deep within the seedbed of your mind. But here, we have him warning them that they be taken not captive by any false teachers. See that no one takes you captive. And here's the two ways, he says, particularly by philosophy and empty deceit. That is, that is something that is according to human tradition or according to the elemental spirits of the world. And then he says, but not according to Christ. According to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Jesus Christ. That is, philosophy, great. Human tradition, great. As long as it is according to Jesus Christ. There is a way of philosophizing, seeking wisdom, that is not, that is incongruent with Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual elements of the world, that is, spiritual forces, that are incongruent with Jesus Christ. And you can expose yourself to those things. If, if it's not a real threat, Paul wouldn't have said it. It might be contrary to our modern perception, but that is the warning here. There is a famous, we all know, of Frederick, Frederick Douglass, uh, the famous uh, abolitionist of the late 19th century. Uh, he was very um, gifted as a writer, and he's a very gifted orator. All the more impressive because, of course, he was a slave at one point. And the woman who uh, taught him the alphabet was corrected very severely. But he kept looking on how to read and write. And his writings are famous to us now, primarily as autobiographical writings, in which he relays and recounts his experience as a slave in the South, the late 19th century of America. There's one point in his writing where he describes how slavery works. That is, how the master controls the slave. It's very similar to the way that false teaching and false understandings of God will bind your mind, will limit your joy in Christ. He said there were two steps as far as how a slave master would use food to control all of these slaves. 
The first step was deprivation, starvation that is. And the second step was dissipation. Deprivation and dissipation. That's how these masters would control these slaves. That is, 51 weeks out of the year, these slaves, Douglas conveys in his own personal experience, would live near starvation levels. Very little food. Working hard, physical labor, all day in the fields, and just enough to sustain life, but always going to bed hungry, not full. And from Jesus Christ comes all the fullness to us. Not full, not satisfied, but just getting by deprivation standards. And this is the intriguing part of it all, as he writes his own account. It was that one week a year where they were free. See, the week of Christmas, there were six days in which the slave masters would let them be free. Which is all the more ironic to celebrate the incarnation of liberty itself in Christmas and Jesus. And then actually freeing slaves mockingly for six days, one week out of the year. They were actually free. And they were actually free to go where they pleased. They, some, not many, Douglas says, few slaves would take that time to go find distant family on other plantations and visit them. Or work on their house or do something productive. But really what happened, he says, and this was the deception of the slavery, is that they would be given so much food. And they would be given tremendous amounts of alcohol. And so what they would do on that one week that they were free, the slave masters would bind all of these slaves with slavery. To be fat and drunk and gluttonous and slothful and lazy, and just laying around. And that one day they were free to go wherever they wished, to do whatever they wanted. They were bound to do nothing but lay. And he says that was the worst of it all. That deception, that lie, that in their freedom, tricking them back into slavery. He writes, it was deemed a disgrace not to get drunk at Christmas. They were given social pressure by their slave masters to drink and drink and drink themselves into a stupor while they were free, I might add. He goes on to say, We staggered up from the filth of our wallowing, took a long breath and marched to the field, feeling, upon the whole, rather glad to go back to the arms of slavery. For our masters had deceived us into believing that's what freedom was. Do you see how that works? The Christian life is, you are free. You are free in Christ. Now, the problem is, if you can be tricked in your freedom to not be free, it doesn't really matter much. All my sins are forgiven. I can lay on my face before the Lord And I am promised that the heavens will open for me. I am told at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I am told that I can be filled with the fullness of God. In whatever extent that means for me in this age in history. It's often been a prayer of mine, and I don't know of yours, that I've often asked God, Lord, let me come as close to you now 
as I am allowed in this age in history. Oh yes, it would be wonderful to have a beatific vision, to see God in all His glory, and to be given clothes with a body that can actually contain that glory. And we're not there yet, but, but we should be eager to take everything of God that we can now, that we are able to sustain now. But the worst of it all, the robbery of it all, is that in that freedom, the one thing that can keep you from that kind of freedom in Christ is lies about Christ, false teaching about Christ. To go into the forms of being drunk by Paul saying human tradition or drunk by the elemental spirits of this world, that you would actually have everything you need in Jesus Christ. And you would be deceived and lied to in such a way that you would have to look to the left and look to the right and never experience the fullness of the grace and the glory and the mercy and the fellowship that you can have with God in this life now, even before the general resurrection. That that's the trick. That you be drunk in your freedom and travel nowhere and walk nowhere with Christ. I'm sensing a need to close. We'll close with this. There was um, a person who asked, it's a thought experiment. Oh, it's beautiful. I wish I could have got to this point, but I'm getting my mind back. COVID mind is almost over. I promise you. Um, There was... Um, a question asked, a thought experiment, that if you could see anybody in the world, and everybody in the world had a a number above their head, an imaginary number that you could see, uh, what would you want it to be? It's an interesting question to ask. What, What they meant by that, their example was, well, if I could see above everyone's head uh, a number from maybe uh, 1 to 10 of how much they care about me. That would be interesting. Or, or if I could see above everyone's head uh, the number of times they've uh, hit a hole in one. I don't know. How about the number of donuts you've eaten? That would be an interesting number to watch. Now here it is. All your sins. What would the number be? If you could have a number above your head, it is not hypothetical, it is real. There is a number above every one of our heads. We were dead, he says, in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. God made alive together with him and forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. If I don't want to forget something, I have to write it down. On my phone, usually I actually end up emailing myself. I'll email myself something I need to know, and it will be in my inbox. I'll see it, I'll remember. How many sins do you have? What is the number above your head? How many sins have you forgotten? The record of debt that keeps us from the fullness of God, that keeps us from entering into His holy presence, is there. 
and the number above every one of our heads is zero. The number above every one of our heads is zero. This is why he says, this is why he says particularly, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father. He is full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Or a translation could be grace in place of grace. That when you have all your grace, there's grace for you. And when you've used your grace, there's more grace for you. That fullness is extended to you. Extended to you. So that when Paul writes the letter and he says, all the record of death that is written against you, he has nailed it to the cross and is forgiven. That happened 30 years before this letter was written. Paul never even met the church. Did they confess of every one of their sins? What about when the letter was in transit meeting them on the way? What about those sins? What about after they read the letter? All the other sins that were to come. All the other numbers that were tiling, moving, clicking above their head. Number and number and number. All the reasons why you and I should never be allowed into the immediate presence of God. And the fullness and the grace of all of this happens As we see in Hebrews 10, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time, past, present, and future, all of us who are being sanctified. This is ours in Christ now. And any lie that takes this away removes the joy that has been purchased and nailed to on the tree. So let us remember, hold to that. Work through that as a church and be super gracious with one another as we have received grace upon grace. Dear Father God, we ask you, Lord, to remove any lies of Jesus Christ in this church. Lord, we ask that you would protect our minds from what is not true. Lord, we ask that you would show us your Son in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that he has been given a body that fails like ours, a mind that is, <coughs> is set aside like ours, that he has perfected us, that he is the fullness of deity and bodily form, and in him we have been made full. We are satisfied. We are complete. We have everything we need. So Lord, please satisfy our hearts. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from every evil, Lord, as we love you and love one another, as you continue to fill us with all your fullness. We will never run dry. We praise you for that. You have given us water to drink in which we will never be thirsty again. Thank you, Lord. Amen.